This is episode 117 with Corey Arnold. Welcome to the Pursuit of Happiness podcast. I am your host, Brian McGuire. And if you are in pursuit of your own happiness, this is the podcast for you. Join me along my own journey in finding happiness as I cover topics such as health, wellness, mindset, travel, adventure, dating, relationships, and so much more as I interview some of the most passionate and successful people in the world. And on this episode, I am super proud to introduce to you Corey Arnold. And while she has a story to share, like so many of us, she was in massive debt. And when I say massive, we're talking over $260,000 by the time she was 31. And within 10 years, she is now a millionaire. So when I first became aware of her and her story, I had to get more. I had to get the background on that. I know so many of us struggle with debt and spending money and not just that, but also when you get money and make money, how to save it, how to invest it properly. And that is what Corey excels at. Corey has a blog, a YouTube channel, and a course called Win With Money, where she shows all of you how to invest, how to pay off debt, how to become a millionaire, and how to improve your mindset. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm interested in all of that, which is exactly why I had to have a conversation with her. Now, paying off a debt of $260,000 is quite a feat in itself, let alone becoming a millionaire, and all within a decade. Absolutely incredible. And one thing I love about following Corey in this conversation was, she doesn't just say, invest. She actually gives you specifics of what she invests in and a percentage of how much. There are so many of us out there, like myself, that hear the word invest and that sounds great. And it's like, okay, now what? How do I get started and where exactly am I putting my money? I don't wanna put all my money into something and then lose it and then, then what? She goes into great detail of what to invest in and why and how she's become so successful so fast. And when I say fast, this isn't an overnight thing. This isn't a get rich quick overnight type of thing. But within just a few years, you can start to see your savings and financial well-being grow and grow and grow. And if you know about compound interest, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This will be a conversation that many of us connect with as she gives just some great and actually simple advice on what to do with your money and how to invest it properly. I'd be so interested to know who takes her advice and where you are one, two, three, five, ten 10 years from now. You could be a millionaire just like she is. Or if you're in some crazy debt from school loans, or buying a house or some big car payment. She gives some great advice in the journey that she took and the mistakes she actually made to get herself out of that hole. All right, let's get rolling. I'm excited for you all to listen to her story. So without further ado, here is Corey Arnold. Hey, Corey. Hey, Ryan, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. 
I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you today. Um, you put out some great content. Uh, I found you on Twitter. Um, yes. Yeah, I just, I genuinely love your content and I love how, I don't know, just kind of like open you are with all of your content. And it's really information that we all should know one way or another. And I think a lot of us get intimidated and confused when it comes to finances and they don't know where to start, whether exactly. they're in a hole, whether they're ahead or just mm-hmm. neutral. A lot of us don't even know where to begin. We have so yeah. many questions and you do a great job of just putting content out there and say, Hey, get started. This is how I did it. Um, I want to get into your story in just a second, but I want to get, yeah, I want to get people to know who you are first. So please introduce Perfect. yourself and we'll talk about your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to to be here. So, Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So go ahead and introduce yourself. Oh yeah. Okay. Start. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. <laughs> hey, so I'm Corey Arnold. Um, really happy to be here. Um, so my story is, you know, about 11 years ago, I had $260,000 worth of debt. Mm. I, you know, found myself in a hole. I was one of those really stubborn 20 year olds, 25 year olds. Um, I just, you know, my mindset was really poor. I, I liked stuff more than, you know, having good finances. Um, I thought the path to wealth was, you know, taking out lots of school loans and, you know, working Mm. in a corporate job forever. Um, so, Luckily, 11 years ago, I decided to actually write out my um, all my debt. And well, sorry, do you want me to actually go? <laughs> or just Keep going. In- yeah, because this is relatable to people because okay, cool. as much as you're talking about debt and making like bad choices, if you will, this is very common, right? Yeah. Like I think okay. a lot of people are going to connect with this. Okay, perfect. I'll jump into the story then. Okay, so 11 years ago, I um, decided to actually list out my debt. And prior to this, actually about two years prior to this, I decided to look at my net worth. And I remember the I, t- I took an MBA or I did an MBA program back in uh, like 2008 to 2010. And after my first year, I remember doing my very first net worth uh, list and it was negative 80,000. And uh, you would have thought that that would have been like, you know, red flag or mm-hmm. turnaround point. And it really wasn't for me. I knew I had like two more years of this part-time MBA program left. And I just, I didn't care. I mean, I cared, like I actually felt ashamed. I remember feeling ashamed about it, but I didn't care enough to actually do something. And I feel like a lot of people are probably in that situation. Um, you know, I, I wanted the the new clothes and, uh, you know, I wanted to live the lifestyle that I wanted and I wasn't going to let oh, a little negative net worth to deter me. Mm-hmm. Um, so then about, around two years later, after I had graduated with the, the MBA, I, um, actually moved back. I moved across the country, um, for that, pro- that, uh, schooling. And then I moved back, um, to where I'm originally from. I found a job, and then one day I was, I was again looking at my net worth, and this time it was negative ninety nine thousand. So I'd gotten a bit worse, um, but this time I actually I listed out the interest rates and calculated the um, how much I was paying in interest every year, and this is actually what woke me up. I realized I was paying almost sixteen thousand dollars a year in interest, 
And at the time, my take-home pay was around 48000 So that was literally like $1, you know, of every $3 um, of my paycheck was going straight to interest. I was not seeing that money. It wasn't helping me get out of debt. I wasn't investing the money. I was literally just throwing it away. So that actually was one of my bigger turning points when I saw how much money I was just literally paying my lenders. Um, so that's kind of where this all started. Mm -hmm. I never like at this point in my life, I never expected to, you know, be where I am today. I was really just like wondering if I was ever going to be able to get out of debt, would I ever be able to retire? Um, and that that's really where I was for, for quite a bit. And now you call yourself a millionaire, correct? Am I right in saying that? Yeah. Yeah. How freaking yes. cool is that? Huh? <laughs> yeah. It's exciting. I, I I'm telling you like 11 years ago, I did not think this was possible. Um, that's great. amazing. I mean, people that never even had that debt aren't even close to being a millionaire. So I definitely have some questions for you. Um, as far as like calculating your, your interest, how did you go about, about doing that? Yeah. So I, I will admit I am an Excel uh, nerd, <laughs> numbers nerd. I love, I love numbers. Um, so I had just, it was a very, very simple spreadsheet. I listed the uh, total debt balances and then right beside it, I put the rate, the interest rate of each loan mm. or credit card, whatever it was. And then literally you just multiply the total balance times the interest rate, and that will get roughly your annual interest. Now it's not going to be perfect to the dollar because I'm rounding. Um, and and hopefully every month you're going to pay down some of that principal. So hopefully it will reduce. Mm. But if you're not paying attention, I mean, you're, you're really going to pay roughly that amount almost every year. Okay. And what are the biggest uh, reasons that people would be in a negative debt? What's like, there's obviously school, right? Like what else is there? Exactly. Yeah. So negative net worth, um, that just means your assets are less than your liabilities. So your liabilities are your debts. And when you have more debt than assets, and, and by the way, assets are cash, their retirement accounts, their real estate, um, you can, your car is technically an asset. It is a depreciating asset. So most cars depreciate your, you know, their value goes down year after year. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, when I took my total assets, less my debts, I had a negative number, which meant my debts were much higher. So like you said, any, um, what they call consumer debt, it's uh, student loans, car loan, mo most car loans, um, credit cards definitely don't have any collateral. So you wouldn't have any asset to offset that debt. Um, those were my biggest ones. Student loans was horrible. I mean, I told you I went, I got my MBA. I, couldn't afford the school that I went to. That was another bad, yeah. bad uh, decision I made, even though I don't regret, you know, the actual school. But um, I think when I started this, you know, my total debt was 260, around 140 was student loans. Um, so they were the bulk of that, that debt. Wow. 140 student loans. And then that's, like I said, that's a real problem for so many people. Okay. So for the people that are in debt, whether it's that much or a little less or a little more or whatever, like I imagine a lot of people have, they struggle. Where do you even start? So like, what is step one just to get out of the box? Yeah, exactly. And that I had that exact struggle as well. Um, step one, you really, you need to go do a physical collection of all your statements, go online, figure out every debt you have and write it down. You can put it in a notebook. You can put it on a spreadsheet. It doesn't matter, but you need to know exactly how much debt you have in total. That's step one. And so step two is 
obviously at some point you got to start tackling this, right? Like exactly. What are the priorities? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so step two, this is where you actually have a choice. And this kind of depends on the person. For me, like I said, I was a numbers nerd. I, I knew that attacking that highest uh, interest loan first was going to pay off my debt fastest. Um, so I think they call that the debt avalanche. So that's when you list all of your debts um, from the highest interest rate to the lowest interest rate rate. And you tackle the, you know, you focus on that highest interest rate first. And then once that's paid off, you move to the next one. Um, for me, that's what I wanted to do because again, your interest rate is the cost of the debt. So the higher interest rate, the more you're paying for that debt. Um, now there is another, there is an, another alternative. It's called the debt snowball, which uh, Dave Ramsey is really famous for this method. Um, this is where you start with your smallest debt. So let's say you have a credit card for like $200. You could probably knock that out in a month or two. Um, so you would start with that small debt because that creates a quick win. Um, so I understand like, you know, sometimes when you have a hole, depending on how big that, you know, that debt mountain is, I guess, um, you know, it's really hard to get started. And that's where I see the value in the debt snowball because it's a quick win. Like you see, mm -hmm. oh yeah, I'm making progress, like one account gone. Um, so I see the the benefits of both uh, methods. For me, again, I was a numbers nerd. I, I saw that I was paying $16,000 of interest. So I knew I needed to really just cut out the interest. Uh, so that was step one or step two, figure out which strategy you want to take and then focus based on the strategy you choose, focus on that, you know, one account at a time. Oof. Okay. So what's, what would be the next step after that? Yep. Because, and then, so like, let's say you have a little money left over. Um, are you putting that towards another one? Or are you trying to pay something? So you're trying to pay us something off super fast, like keep going. Yeah. Good question. So uh, what I would do is definitely make the minimum payments on every debt account you have. Okay. Um, you, you know, you don't want to pay extra late fees or extra fees or any type of fee uh, because you're not making your minimum payment. So that's number one, minimum payments on everything. And then on that first loan that you've decided that's the one you're paying off, every extra dollar goes toward that loan. Um, so for me, I was focused. Um, my uh, So I did some creative things, I guess you could call creative <laughs> if you want to use that term. Um, today, the environment's not quite the same for that. So for example, um, I had bought right before I kind of turned around my money, I had bought a fixer upper house. And again, I'm in a very rural area of the US. Um, and this was 2011. Um, so, so were you in was, debt when you bought that? I was, I so was. You, it took out more debt. Uh huh. Well, okay. that is actually part of the 260. That's what okay. I was going to say. So this fixer, I paid 49,000 for it. Which okay. today sounds impossible. I know we're in a totally different environment than we were 11 mm -hmm. years ago. You know, 2011, we were, um, or 2012, we were just, we we're still recovering actually from 0809, the, mm -hmm. you know, the housing crisis. So it was very, very different environment. And I actually got this fixer upper as a short sale. So I actually paid less for it than what, you know, the prior owner um, owed on it. So that's, yeah, 49,000 is what I, what I paid for it. I ended up putting 35,000 into it. Um, again, my lender, I don't know why she approved me because she told me that I didn't have the finances and she, for some reason, she went on, went out on a limb and, and gave me that loan, which she probably, probably shouldn't have, but I'm, I'm happy she did. Um, so anyway, 
this is actually before I turned my money around. I actually maxed out my all my credit cards <laughs> trying to renovate this house. Mm. And uh, then that was the point where I was like, okay, like I got to do something different. Um, so, so yeah, so, so sorry, back to the, the strategy I used. Um, after I got the, the house pretty much renovated, I was, my interest rate was higher because I was higher risk. And because it was kind of like a construction, hybrid construction loan, because um, she gave, the lender gave me a mortgage for the house. And then she gave me kind of like um, incremental payments for the renovations. And uh, so anyway, I was paying a pretty uh, decent rate, like a high rate for my uh, mortgage. So I, after the renovations were done, um, I was, I was uh, getting a little better from a credit, like my credit was never bad, but it, I think it was increasing a little bit. So she was able to refinance me at a lower rate because mm. it was just one mortgage. And then I was, because I had built some equity in the house due to the the renovations, which a lot of, probably 50% of the re renovations I did on my own with uh, family help. Um, so I had built some equity in it. I actually took, I think a 19, roughly $19,000 credit card, which was at like 13% and um, consolidated that into the house, which again, you know, most financial experts will tell you don't put unsecured debt, like, like credit cards into a secured loan, which is a, a mortgage on your house. Um, and I understand that, you know, I was taking on more of this risk by taking on that debt and putting it into my house. But at the same time, I was able to lower my mortgage by I think two or 3%. And then I was able to lower that credit card by like, I don't, you know, 10 or 12% was something pretty significant. Um, so that I did that in order to save on interest, which that alone, I think was maybe like, I don't know, five or 600 bucks a year, maybe even more than that savings. I, I think, yeah, I, actually, I think it was maybe two, 2000 a, a year hmm. savings for interest. Um, so I did little tricks like that throughout this <laughs> entire journey to save on interest, which over the long term, they, it did save me quite a bit in interest. So where did the idea come from to buy this house? Was this something like a passion project you always wanted to do? Or was your was this kind of a plan of like, hey, I'm going to buy this to start getting myself out of this debt? No, no, no. I wish I was that smart. I wish that had been part of the plan. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, I, um, so I'd been renting for a while. I was 31. I, when I went to get my MBA program, it was a larger city and I was renting there. I came back to where I was from. I rented some more and I just felt like I was ready for a house. Um, but I could not afford, <laughs> you know, a decent house. So I ended up buying this really cheap fixer upper, um, and no, that was not, I mean, that was me just wanting to own a house. It wasn't, it was not a smart financial move. Like what I should have done is um, just stayed in my apartment and, you know, paid this off and then probably bought the house later. But I, uh, I don't always follow the rules. <laughs> I'll admit well, that. do you still own this house? No. So I actually sold it in 2016. Um, I did make, it's funny. I made a little bit of like profit on it, but I don't know. It might've been 15 or maybe 15, 20 grand, but it wasn't anything too significant um, because prices hadn't quite appreciated. You know, right now we're all used to these crazy appreciation um, right. over the last few years, but mm -hmm. this is in 16. We hadn't quite hit that yet. Okay. So we're looking back a few years ago, you are still in negative debt. Mm -hmm. At what point did you kind of like start to turn it around? Yeah. So I, um, I'm trying to think, I think it was actually year like 
I think it was around year two and a half, which sounds kind of crazy. Um, but about a year into this journey, I, and this is the other thing. So I, let me break down that debt for you. So 260, 140 was student loans, 22,000 was credit cards, 49 or 50,000 was the um, fixer upper. And then I actually had a rental property for about, I think a $50,000 mortgage roughly. Wow. Um, you you know these again, numbers like that. Like, like know, you've told I this know. story before. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds so crazy to have two properties with less like mortgages of less than a hundred thousand <laughs> combined. Um, but again, I bought this duplex in a very rural area. I bought it in 2009. I actually, surprisingly, I overpaid for it. So I I paid sixty-eight thousand for it in 2009. I ended up selling it in 2013 for 60. Um, so people, sometimes I write about that in my Twitter threads and they're like, oh, you own a duplex bubble. And I'm like, no, it was not a good deal. I bought it for 68. I sold it for 60. Like I lost $8,000 <laughs> on that deal. Um, I owned it for four years. Um, so not a good deal. Like if you look over the four years, but I did sell it in 2013. And at that, that's when I was getting serious about my money. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that was a huge help. I think that was like $2,500 a year in interest that I saved immediately. Plus, you know, I think it was roughly 50,000 off the, you know, off, off the mortgage. Plus mm -hmm. I ended up because um, I had had it for four years. I had a pretty aggressive, like a 15 year fixed mortgage. I actually walked away from the closing table with like, I don't know, 10, 10,000 bucks, um, which immediately went on to another debt. Um, right. So luckily by that point I had, <laughs> I had, you know, learned some lessons and every extra dollar I was getting was going toward the debt. Okay. Wow. Okay. So a lot to yes. comprehend here. Um, were you picking up like any extra jobs or, or working extra or anything just to get yourself out of this? That's a good question. So I was, um, when I bought the fixer upper, I was smart enough to know that I had no money at that point in time. <laughs> so I actually started um, working at Lowe's as as a weekend help. So I would work 20 hours every weekend, um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Mm. And um, it was good, actually. I didn't make a ton of money, uh, but I worked there for about a year. Um, and during and part of that strategy was actually, uh, you know, getting some employee discounts for the, the fixer upper fixes. So I did save about five grand just on, you know, employee discounts, which was good. I made a little extra money, um, which helped. Uh, but my life was pretty chaotic because I was working full time. I was doing the lows on the weekends. And then I was also uh, working on that house. Um, so that was a very busy year for me. But mm -hmm. it was a good year because that I mean, that was really the the beginning. That was kind of like the bottom, but the beginning as well, if that makes any sense. Um, so it ended up being 2012 was a pretty good year. Um, yeah, it's great to get these backstories of like, you know, people are in such a hole like that. Like you got to grind. Sometimes it doesn't just change overnight and you don't get lucky. You just win a lottery ticket. Like it's really cool to hear you say, you know, I was working at Lowe's 20 hours on the weekend plus this, like, Hey, you know, you make decisions that get you into debt like that. You have, it takes time, right? It's kind of like, it's like losing weight or whatever, right? Like sometimes you gotta to diet for a few months before you start seeing the results that you want to exactly. see. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah, no, that's fine. So yeah, so I worked at Lowe's for about a year. I finally did have to quit. I um, The good thing is I was also like, it's funny when you start focusing on something, I'm sure you've probably noticed this and other people have noticed this, but when I was focusing on paying off that debt, 
mm-hmm. all of a sudden, like, you know, I was working at Lowe's. So I had a little extra income there. I started getting promoted at work, which was cool. I got a tax return. You know, it was like all of a sudden, like this money, which I may have not noticed prior to this, I was noticing, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's extra $500 that's going to the debt, you know, extra $300 here. Um, and it really adds up when you really start thinking about, hey, every dollar is going to this debt. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I did really for um, this whole debt free journey. Um, and then I didn't it took me till about two, the end of 2016 to actually pay everything off. So it was almost a five year journey. Um, that makes sense. What, yeah, what sacrifices would you say you made over those few years? Yeah. So that to me, this was actually a really hard part. So I was used to going to the store and like, you know, buying whatever I wanted. Not that I wanted a ton, but I was, I am a natural spender Um, and just going and swiping that card. And part of it's mindset too. Like in my head for the longest time through my twenties and, you know, until around 30, I, um, I just, saw my credit card limit as that's free money to spend. Like that's Mm. part of, you know, and it's crazy. Like now I look at that and I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so bad. Um, I was, you know, I probably paid so much money in interest because of that thought, you know, that belief system. Um, so yeah, so I really, and, and at the time it was really hard. I had to watch, you know, I know some people say you don't have to watch every little latte you spend or, or whatever, but for me, I really had to cut the spending just because, um, it was so natural for me just to go swipe mm-hmm. the card and not worry about it that I had to get intentional. I had to start writing a grocery list. Um, you know, I had to really watch my my dollars. Um, and a lot of people like that's not there's um, I feel like, you know, maybe they're stubborn or they just don't they see it too much as a sacrifice. Um, for me, the thing that kind of got me through it because it was it was hard for me too, is I stopped seeing it as a sacrifice. And I started seeing it as um you know, actual progress to my goal. Like, what do I want more? Do I want to retire early or do I want these this pair of shoes? Um, so it was really all about like my perspective and, and how I saw money versus stuff. Um, and it, it was hard. I'll tell you, it was hard. Like me today, I'm, I'm totally different. Like, it's funny how, um, you know, I, I'm very grateful for what I've got and I feel like I don't even need that much today. And I don't know why it's so different if I've kind of trained myself that way, or if I just have a different perspective now, but, um, it was, it was very tough for the first year or two. Yeah. I mean, it's good to set expectations like that. Like you can't pay off a debt of that amount and still travel the world and go buy all these bougie clothes, go to five-star restaurants and stuff. And I think a lot of a struggle with, and I'm sure you probably still do. And I know I do occasionally is like, you know, if, if you're making good money, you got a job and whatever, like buying things that you've like, I guess, earned, or you want to treat yourself or reward yourself. You only live once type of situation. It's like, do you ever have trouble? Like with that line of like, Hey, I really want to treat myself. I've been working hard or like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, today I am more willing to treat myself like, you know, if I want to go out to eat, I, I don't generally give it a second thought today. Not that I go out that often, but it's not like, oh my gosh, I'm going to break the bank today because I, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, there's, and that's not a huge expense, but I will go out to eat more often and not, not give it as much thought. Mm -hmm. Um, now I will tell you, I, uh, I would like my family, we were trying to uh, come up with a solution. This is kind of a random example, but, um, we were trying to transport some of my pets to another place pretty far away. Mm. And, 
we thought we said, okay, we could buy an SUV, but the SUVs we were looking at, this was actually like a year ago. Um, and, and we have the cash to do this. Um, we could buy an SUV, but it's like, it's $45,000 mm-hmm. or I have an F-150. I could just put a cap on it and it's only $1,500 <laughs> and I could transport the animals that way. There you go. Um, so that was actually a real conversation that happened. We ended up spending $1,500, not 45,000 for the new car. So those conversations still happen. We still make choices based on money um, because I, I do work full time still, and I do still want to retire. Uh, so for example, that specific situation, the, you know, the cheaper option was, it was, it worked for us. It wasn't, there wasn't any need to go get a new car um, for this, this thing we needed. So, for sure. so yeah, definitely the conversations still happen. And I want to get into momentarily about how you invest and the stocks and uh, index funds that you invest in. I really want to get your advice on that. Really want to. Um, But back to your days when you were kind of working at Lowe's and trying to get out of debt. If you could, you're an analytical person. You just said you like Excel. Let's pretend we have a pie chart of your paycheck. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at your paycheck, how much would you say you're divvying it out to what? Just so people can have a ballpark of, you know, how much do I need to put towards this debt realistically to get out of this? That is a good question. Yeah, I have looked at that actually. Um, so this is the crazy thing. Again, I'll go back to my salary back then, which full disclosure, I make more money now. You know, this is like 10, 10 11 years ago. Yeah. It's obviously yeah. inflation and, and I've got more years of experience. But back then, um, my take-home pay was around 48000 so that was actually when you um, added my interest and my principal payments, so my total debt payments, they were around twenty four thousand. So fifty percent of my money was going. Thank to you debt for sa- thank you for disclosing this because I yeah. imagine forty eight, probably around average mm-hmm. or so, give or take. Mm-hmm. It's really good that people can can see mm-hmm. these numbers in their head. So thank you for doing. Yeah, that. no problem. Yeah, so. Yeah. So one third of the money, 16,000 was going to interest. Another roughly, um, I guess it's 8,000, eight or 9,000 was going to the actual principal payments. So that's literally 50% of my money was just gone pretty much, uh, or obligated. I guess I could say obligated already when I got paid. Right. Um, and then at the time I did start investing in retirement. So that was about 10%. And then the other was, um, just living, living expenses. Was there I ever wasn't living point... real expensively. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was gonna say. So obviously, you cut down the cost. So was there ever a point you're like, "Oh my god, am I ever gonna get out of this?" Did you ever feel that yeah. way? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, so now looking back, it's like, oh, you know, that's awesome. It happened. But when you're in it, um, this is a five year journey. This didn't happen overnight. Student loans just don't go away. Even though I really, I did some creative things to save interest. Um, this was five, almost five full years. And, you know, the good thing is I was updating a tracker like every two weeks, every time I got paid. So I could see the progress every two weeks. Um, But, you know, I remember one time, so one more mistake that I made um, to set off this whole journey at the end of 2011, I decided to cash out the only retirement account I had. (laughs) And I, um, uh, I think the balance was around 28,000. So um, I ended up getting like a check for 24,000. And then that was actually the, that was the very first big payment I made toward this $260,000 of debt. But what I didn't realize was about a year later, the IRS 
for some reason, my taxes didn't get paid when I withdrew that money. So they sent me a bill for like two or $3,000. And, oh um, and I thought, oh my gosh, like I was making progress. And then all of a sudden, basically that, you know, that whole month has to go toward the IRS. So there were things like that, that came up where I'm like, oh, I was making such good progress. And then all of a sudden you got, you got hit with a big bill. Um, and that happens. I mean, that happens to everyone. So when that happens, um, you just have to stop and think about the long term, go back to your tracker and look at the progress you've made so far. Even if you don't see a, you know, progress in the last two months, um, look at where you started because, and that is for me, that's why tracking works so much because it is so, so easy to get wrapped up in, um, these habits, these routines that are hard, especially like, you know, trying to um, lower your spending. It is hard after a while. Like, you know, you can do it for six months, but try doing it for five years. It, it does take a toll on you. Um, so having that tracker and being able to say, oh my gosh, look where I was four years ago or three mm -hmm. years ago. Look at what I've done. That really inspired me and kept me on track. Um, even when I had weird, weird bills or weird, unexpected expenses come up. I mean, I really imagine that requires a few uncomfortable conversations with yourself looking in the mirror about like, you got to get real with yourself and like, yeah. hey, these these are the next few months and years of my life. I really need to dedicate time to get where I want to go. Like, can you explain why pulling that money out was a mistake? Because I imagine there's a lot of people that probably just want to do that themselves and pay this off. Yeah, I can tell you. Um, I mean, for me, I, you know, it it was fine. I, I actually don't regret it um, because it did give me kind of a, a jump start. Like I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm at 260 and now I'm at 235 already. Like, look at that. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. But so that was good for me. The bad part was it was, uh, I think the balance, I don't know, 26, 27, 28,000. Um, it was in 2011. <laughs> And we were still recovering. So the S&P hadn't come back from 2009, 2008. And um, I think 2015 was kind of its high. So if I, I mean, that money would be well over 100,000, probably even, you know, maybe 150 today. Um, but, you know, just thinking about, oh my gosh, the, the stock market was so low. If I just left it in there, it would be a lot of money today. Um, but that's okay. You know, we live, we learn, we make mistakes. Um, most of the mistakes I made, I did learn from. So I'm, I don't regret it, you know, but if, if I had to give someone else advice, I would probably say, just let that money sit there because it will grow so much faster than the, you know, the interest you're paying on your, your debts. Did you ask anybody about that before you did it? Or were you just like, screw it. I'm taking this money out. Yeah, I just did it. Um, <laughs> I am a bit of a, uh, I mean, I was, I was single at the time, so there wasn't like another person I should have really talked to, but, um, yeah, I, I did it. I may, I may have mentioned it to my parents, but they, they are not the best, um, financially. They probably weren't the, the people to go to anyway. So, so yeah, I just did it. Yep. So correct me if I'm wrong. If you could talk to your previous self, you would probably tell yourself, just let that money sit there. This is going to be worth yeah. a lot of money soon. Exactly. Just let it sit there. Um, and that is one thing. I'm not a patient person. Um, so, you know, I kind of probably instinct or intuitively knew that that would grow. I just didn't realize how fast. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, if I could go back, I would I would do it a little differently. Yep. OK, so with all that money sitting there and the growth, I want, we're going to talk about that in just a moment, as I said. But you mentioned something that when you were working at Lowe's around that time, you were putting 10% into a retirement fund, right? So 
where did that number come from? Because that's a decent number. A lot of people feel like, oh, I don't know, I can use this money. Like I can maybe only do 2%. Like, so why 10%? Where'd you come up with that? Yeah. Um, 10% isn't, I mean, it doesn't have to be 10%. For me, um, in order to get my full employer match, I had to contribute 6%. And that that was really the goal. And then I really did want to retire early. And I thought I'm never going to retire early if I have no money. So I went ahead and put the extra 4% in. Um, but really, when I recommend that to people, I really just say, you know, at least if, if your employer does offer a match, I mean, at least get the match since it's yeah. free money. And then I say pretty much the max while you're in consumer debt is really 10%. Um, so anywhere between six or 10, I think would have been fine. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering that because I imagine people probably go back and forth isn't like, well, I do want my 401k to grow, but I got to pay off that now. So what do I do with this money here? And I'm sure that's kind of like a fine line. You got to balance that, you know? Yeah. And to be honest, actually on that point, like, um, I do, uh, I have these five stages of money that I talk about and retirement investing does come before paying off your consumer debt. But with a big caveat, once you set up your retirement, you should have it fully, fully automated. And I don't, you know, you shouldn't focus on it. It's like set it up. Don't think about it until you're out of consumer debt, because I agree with you. Focus is is a really powerful thing. Um, so I don't want like if, if someone's in consumer debt, I don't want them also thinking about that retirement all the time. I kind of want them to set it, forget it literally don't think about it again and don't even check your account until you're you're out of debt because that then that's your your big focus great advice and now we're getting to some good stuff here too um i'm really happy that you shared your story because that's one of the reasons i found you and i really wanted you on this because not only are you now a millionaire and have great advice on index funds but you actually live the journey of getting yourself out of debt that so many of us find ourselves in. So you're relatable. You're not just like sitting on top of your mountain, giving advice, come join me up here. Um, you grinded and you got out of it. And so for the people who are setting up retirement accounts, who are putting money in retirement accounts, let's be honest, people are probably doing that. And like, I don't know what I'm doing now. I got money in here. What am I doing? Mm -hmm. yeah. So when they come to you and they say, hey, I got some money in here. What do I do with this? What do you say? Yeah, good question. Yep. Uh, so I encourage everyone to invest in retirement. Are you talking retirement mostly? Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. So invest in retirement. Um, generally, when friends come to me or, or family members ask me exactly what to invest in, you know, generally most um, employer uh, options when you're investing, it's, there's not a ton of options. A lot of people do offer the targeted funds. So like the 2045 fund, you may have seen things like that. Um, generally, I don't go with those. Those are usually a mix of bonds and equities. And they, for the most part, they generally have um, higher expense ratios. So I tend to tell people to stay out of those. <laughs> I don't know if it's the best advice, but for me, it's it's work to, to avoid those. I personally, my retirement account is in a large cap um, index fund. Um, I, I don't think it's exactly the S&P 500, but it's it's very close to that. I don't know if I actually have the option of the S&P 500 in my, in my retirement options. Mm -hmm. um, but generally, yeah, if anyone asks me, I, I tell them to go for a, some type of large cap, something that's diversified in different sectors. Um, and to be honest, my entire retirement, which is about 60% of my net worth is in one fund. So I don't think you have to have like five different funds for your retirement. Again, it's it's something that you don't really want to 
look at every day. Um, it's something you definitely don't want to buy and sell a lot from. Um, this is a long-term, you know, it's, it's very long-term. You're not, the plan is to really not touch this money until you're 59 and a half. Um, so I really see it that way. And I, you know, I don't plan to touch it. Anyone I talk to about it, mm -hmm. uh, I tell them this is hands-off money until, you know, until you're at the right age. So for people listening to this, they don't really understand what an index fund is. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So an index fund, um, an index fund mimics an index. What's an index? An index is, um, it's any of the large, um, indexes like the S&P 500, Standard & Poor's 500, the uh, NASDAQ, the uh, Dow Jones. So all of these, I'm sure you've heard of some of these, all of these indexes, um, they they are almost like a benchmark for different um, size uh, companies and different sectors. So for example, the S&P 500 are 500 of the largest companies in the US from a market capitalization standpoint. Uh, market cap, is the number of shares outstanding times the price of the stock. So as you can imagine, um, the larger a company is, the larger market cap they're gonna have. Um, so I, I tend to go with the large cap just because these are these are the companies you've heard of. So this is Microsoft, Apple, Google. These are, you know, they should be, they're, they're definitely established companies and they're, a lot of them do have some growth trajectory. Um, there's also the Russell 2000, which is more of a small to mid cap. Um, I think, I don't know if it's mid or small. I think it might be small where there's 2000 pretty small companies and that's a bit higher risk. So I don't generally um, recommend those to people, especially people who really do not want to lose money. Um, the good thing about the S&P 500 is it, it does have years where it loses money, but they are far, you know, they're, um, I don't know, every every five to six years, um, there might be one losing year mm -hmm. where you have three positive years or three or four positive years. Um, so for me, you know, the S&P 500, it's, it's the least risky in my view. Um, and, it, and it's easy. You can also, these index funds are actually very cheap because you're not, you don't have someone actually managing the fund. They, these funds are set up to mimic the companies that are part of that S&P 500, for example. Um, so you don't have a manager buying and selling, buying and selling, because that that actually um, gives the investor a lot more cost. Um, so index funds, yeah, they're cheap. They're, they generally do have a pretty good return. Um, and they're simple. For me, it's just, it's all about simplicity, ease, automation. Um, that's kind of how I deal with my money. Now, would you suggest the same route for your personal like IRAs, like traditional IRAs, Roth IRAs and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, so any so for me personally, um, any retirement account is in some type of fund. Um, so I mentioned that retirement account. I do have a, a Roth IRA. It's in a fund. Um, the funny thing is, I, I think it's a large cap fund. I don't think it's an index fund, though, but it's um it's got a low, it's a very old, old fund. It's got a very low expense ratio. It has a good, you know, historical return. Um, and then when it comes to non-retirement, I do get a bit more aggressive in my non-retirement just because that's money that I, I mean, I do need it at some point, but I don't necessarily like need it today. Um, so I'm, I'm a little um, let or more um, risk tolerant when it comes to those funds. So you said you just said non-retirement. Is that what you just said? Non-retirement investment, like a discount brokerage 
Um, can, you, can you explain that? Because you're probably losing sure. some people. Yeah. I like some clarification too. So what do you sure, mean by sure. that? Yeah. So, um, okay. So 401ks, um, SEPs, 403bs, IRAs, those are all in the retirement uh, type account. So there's some type of tax tax benefit to most of those accounts. Mm -hmm. um, so those are all money that you really don't want to touch until you're about 59 and a half. Now, if you want to retire early, then um, you're going to have to start investing in some stocks or funds that you can actually get to before 59 and a half. Um, I call it non-retirement investments, but it's it's basically it's um, you can go to any brokerage like Fidelity, Vanguard, Schwab, E-Trade. You know, there's lots of different brokerages out there. Um, you can literally open up an account. I think you can just do it online. Just open up an account, um, uh, link it to your bank, deposit some money in there, and then you can literally just buy and sell stocks or funds, index funds especially, um, at your leisure. And again, this is something that I, um, so my retirement investments, they are automated out of my paycheck. So I don't have to worry about those. These ones, um, every paycheck, so I get paid every two weeks, every paycheck, I have a specific amount of money that I transfer over. I don't quite have it automated, but I do transfer it over every two weeks and then invest in, um, some of the stocks that, that I like. Perfect. This is awesome. So you have a retirement fund through work and you're also doing this brokerage account on your own, correct? Exactly. Yep. Cool. I'm doing the exact same thing. So that makes me feel very good. <laughs> but would you mind, I don't hope this is not a personal question. Would you mind saying what index funds do you prefer? Are there, are there any of them yeah. that we should look into? Sure, sure. Yeah, um, my two favorite index funds are VOO. So this is the Vanguard S&P 500 and then the QQQ, which mm -hmm. is the uh, NASDAQ 100. And so just a heads up, QQQ is more technology-based. It, it, it seems a little riskier because it's not quite as diversified as the VOO. Um, the VOO, again, it's large cap. It's very diversified. Um, there are a lot of technology companies in it, but there's also oil and gas, energy, there's uh, consumer goods, um, communications. There's a lot of different industries in the S&P 500. Whereas QQQ, there are still some different um, different industries or sectors, but it, it has a very um, a much more focused uh, uh, um, company base of uh, technology. Gotcha. Okay, those are actually two I do dabble in. Um, I also have a lot of VTI, if that sounds familiar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that's okay with you. <laughs> yeah, yep, of <laughs> but, uh, course. To that, so that's the total stock market, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. VTI. Um, what are your thoughts on ETFs or index funds for foreign companies? Interesting. I so I've always seen the international as as higher risk. Um, and I don't have my like my pulse on. I don't necessarily. First of all, I don't watch the news much. Um, but <laughs> I when good, I do, good call. Good call. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I do, it's more U.S. based. So I don't necessarily like. Obviously, I know there's some geopolitical things happening. Um, I, to be honest, I tend to stay away from the international. Um, but it's I. I don't know if it's on purpose necessarily. Mm -hmm. I just haven't had that attraction or appeal to them. You're just gonna put your money in with where you know mm -hmm. it's going, type of thing. Yeah, I mean, I completely where? get that. Um, okay, so do you ever like? reallocate or how often do you like dive into the numbers to make sure you have the percentages in the right places? Yeah, good question. 
Um, okay. So I don't touch my retirement. I have not rebalanced that thing. I actually only own one fund in the 401k and, um, one fund in the IRA. And you're so a millionaire. Let's just repeat yeah, that. I don't touch those. Yeah. It can be that simple. That's awesome. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now my non-retirement, so my discount brokerage account, I, um, that is, I wouldn't call it play money, but it's um, it's definitely higher risk. So I'm in some single stocks there. I um, I have a couple of different strategies there. There's a few stocks I own for the uh, dividends. There's a few stocks I own because they're you know their value or their growth stocks. Um, and so yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call it rebalancing. There's one stock, for example, that um, I was just trying to. Er- hit a, a quantity of shares, which I own now. So I'm done with that. I'm not going to touch it for a while. Um, same with some of the dividend paying stocks. Like I just try to, um, my goal was to own a certain number of shares because that's how, you know, I can um, forecast like how much I'm going to make off the dividends. Um, so that's kind of the goal is just to keep um, growing or yeah, growing my share of, um, of, uh, stocks or like the quant I'm, I'm more focused on the quantity than the the price okay. in most cases so for dividends i want to hit on that for a moment one if you're going to explain i'm assuming some people sure. don't know what a dividend is and two how important is that to have in some of your investments as a stock or an index fund that gives back dividends is that important is that something that people should care about yeah, that's a great question. Um, and so it's funny, maybe two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I posted this chart. It's of the S&P 500 and it shows the return without dividends and with dividends. Um, I think the S&P averages, I don't know if it's over the last 50 years, but it's around 10%. And without dividends, it's only like a three or 4% uh, return. So dividends, I think they were like 6%. Um, they make up a huge part of the return of, of any investor's um, portfolio. So especially if, you know, if they're in dividend paying stocks. Um, so because of that, dividends are very, very important. Um, and a dividend just on for simplicity, it's um, it happens. It can happen monthly, quarterly, annually. It depends on the um, company uh, where basically the company will uh, figure out their quarterly or their earnings for that time period. And they'll decide on a certain um, price per share that they're going to pay for their dividend. Uh, So if you own, you know, if I own 100 shares of company A, and they're going to pay a dollar per share, then I've got $100 coming to me. Well, actually, if they pay quarterly, I've got, I've got uh, $25 coming to me that quarter, Mm -hmm. $100 for the full year. Um, so dividends, they can be huge. Now, the thing is, I think a lot of people um, are skeptical of dividends, because if you look at a lot of the um, the companies who have the established uh, dividend paying um, pattern, you'll see that most dividends are like 2%, 3%. They don't seem like a high rate of return. Um, but the thing is, if you get into some of these companies when they're their stock price is a little lower. Let's say the price is $100 and they're, again, they're paying like a, let's say 2%. So you get $2 every year for every share you own um, and you bought it at $100. But then maybe in two years, the price has jumped to $200 and they're still paying a 2% return. So that's actually $4 um, per share. So um, so then you're actually getting 4% on that original $100 that you bought. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's called your co- dividend cost basis. So that's really the important thing. So when you start to buy dividend paying stocks, you want to hold on to them and let that price appreciate because your personal return 
might not be 2%. You might actually get 4% if that stock has appreciated, you know, um, over the years. That's great advice. And now for dividends, you can manually or automatically reinvest, right? Do you do that? Um, so a few, I think in 2018, I was in a fund, um, that did automatically reinvest the dividends. Um, so I did do that. And so I think I owned that fund from 18 to 20 and then, and that wasn't, I, you know, it's funny. Um, I, yeah, that fund, it was automatic. So I actually, actually, I actually never saw the dividends. Um, but now I own like BOO and I actually get the dividend. Like I see the payment come through. And for some reason, I like that better, even though when I get a dividend, I do reinvest it. Maybe not in BOO though. Maybe I've got a different priority at that time. Um, so I generally do reinvest them. I just like to see them come separately. <laughs> I don't know why, I, yeah. you know, it makes no difference if the fund actually does it itself versus me, you know, reinvesting it. it makes no difference, like financially, other than I get a choice of what, where I want to reinvest it. Um, so I kind of yeah, like the flexibility sense. though. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Some of us just want to get that check in the mail rather than the automatic right. thing. I mean, I get it. We all have our preferences, mm -hmm. but for people that are wondering, like you can get these funds, index funds and ETFs or whatever with dividends and literally not touch it. You just click a button or two and it automatically reinvest for you. You don't, you don't, doesn't come to your bank and sit there wait for you to do something. Okay. You don't have to do exactly. do that at all. Yeah. Now this is uh, absolutely wonderful advice. Do you have any more advice or tips when it comes to investing or index funds at all? Yeah. Um, index funds. I mean, it's yeah. Just don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. I think we as human beings, we naturally, for some reason, when it comes to our money, we like to overcomplicate it. And I know this because I used to do this. Um, you know, even when I was in debt, I would find like complicated schemes and think that they were better than just simply paying off the debt. Um, and it's the same with investing. You know, we uh, we might go talk to a financial advisor. They they sound really smart. They're using terms we don't know. And we just kind of hand over our money to them without really understanding what we're investing in. So my advice is, first of all, make sure you understand what you're investing in. Don't let someone's vocabulary, um, you know, drive you to make a choice that you don't really understand. Because um, in most of life, you know, like if I at work, if I get this really long, complicated email, I don't want to read it. I want to read an email that's like two sentences, right? And very clear. Yeah. Same with, I mean, Apple is so um, successful because they are so intuitive. Their products are easy to understand. The packaging is simple. So in most cases within our life, we love simplicity, but for some reason, we we love to complicate our money. We I think we we feel like it sounds sophisticated if you know we can talk talk better about the money. But anyway, so that's my advice. Really, like keep it simple. Um, index funds are so easy dollar cost averaging, which um, dollar cost averaging is just a simple way to say that you're going to continue to invest on a, some type of pattern every two weeks, once a month, whatever it is. Um, you're just going to continue to invest no matter what the market's doing. You're putting in that $500 a month or whatever the value is. Um, that's dollar cost or yeah, dollar cost averaging. And that is really the simple strategy that I would uh, recommend for investing in stocks. Great. Another question I have for you is, let's say I'm listening to this, I'm 30, 40, 45, 50, whatever you want to say. And I feel like I'm just screwed. Like 
I can't, it's too late in life. I can't get out of this. You know, let's say someone has that mindset. What would you tell them? It is never too late. Like I actually feel like I was a late bloomer as well. I mean, I was at 31, I had, you know, a ton of debt. And um, even if you're 41 today, 51, it's never too late because if you don't change today, then, you know, in 10 years, you're not going to be any different. You're actually probably going to be in a bigger hole. Um, so I would say it's never too late. You can always improve, um, but you do have to get serious about it. You've almost got to get mad about it and really have that point where you actually decide that you're going to change. Because if you just kind of casually go through this process, it's not going to happen. Um, there's got to be some emotional reaction where you're like, you know, this is enough. I've had it. Um, I make too much money and I have like nothing to show for it. Um, you've got to have that point where you just get so fed up with yourself or your behaviors um, that you decide you actually commit to changing. Mm. Now, people listening to this also know you're a millionaire and they probably want to know why don't you just retire, right? Like, is there ever a moment or is there some kind of, I know there's no, there's no textbook for this, right? I, I get that. But is there ever like some kind of an indicator that, okay, I have enough to retire comfortably? Like, how are you going to know that? How am I supposed to know that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so my gauge <laughs> is the 4% rule. Uh, and the 4% rule states that you can take 4% of your investments every year, as long as they're in some type of uh, fund or stock or asset that is growing at roughly, I don't know, eight to 10% on average, you could take like up to 4% easily and not worry about um, ever really digging into your principal too much. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, about 20, 25% of my net worth is in real estate. Um, so I don't necessarily have a million dollars in my accounts quite yet. Um, so for me, that number, and it's, it's a little bit above a million, like, for example, if I had a million dollars, then basically that says I could take 40,000 out, um, every year and, and probably wouldn't have to worry about the money anymore. And to be honest, because I have no debt at all, my mortgages, they're paid, you know, my house is paid off. Um, I could probably live on $40,000. Yeah. Um, the other part is though, um, a lot of my money, some of it's in a Roth, but most most of it's in uh, traditional accounts. So you've got to pay taxes on that. So so my number is probably a bit higher than a million. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is the goal to hit that number. Um, it, I'm not quite there yet. And then I have a few other goals that I want to hit as well. Um, so I'm probably not ready to, to retire officially yet. No, bravo. And so do you have any plan or can you give any advice on when someone perhaps slows it down a little bit? Let's just say you're very heavily in VOO, right? At what point do you perhaps start to trickle into something a little less aggressive? Yeah, to be honest, I don't have any plans of trickling other than, so if I was really, let's say I was serious about um, retiring in two years, I would, um, I would start to come back and actually start probably um, liquidating some of those investments because when I retire, I want to have at least a full year worth of cash. Um, because the thing is like, I've known people actually that just retired like two years ago and they were, or maybe a year ago and they were, um, you know, they're like, Oh my gosh, I don't want to touch my retirement right now because you're just taking, you know, you're realizing those losses. Um, so before you would actually go to retire, I would make sure you've got plenty of cash up front so that if the market does, take a downturn. You've got the cash that 
where you don't have to actually sell investments at the low prices. Um, but to be honest, I'm not, yeah, I don't think I'm ever um, planning to get out of equities altogether, other than if I need the money within five years, that's when I would probably start to um, mm. either put it in cash or CDs or something safer. Okay. And so I know I can, I could probably Google this and whatnot, but I, I'm having a conversation about it. And something that I'm not clear on, I don't have to worry about it for a little while is when it comes to that retirement age and I want to start pulling my money out, what's the rules about that? Yeah, it depends the type of account you have. Um, so for example, if you have a Roth IRA, as long as you've opened that IRA five years or more previously, mm -hmm. so you could actually be 50 years old. If you opened it at 45 years old, um, you can actually take out everything that you've contributed to that account. Now, within that five years, if you had growth, then um, that growth would be um, penalized if you took it out before um 59 and a half. 59 and a half. Um, now for 401ks, for the most part, there are some exceptions. For the most part though, you do need to wait until 59 and a half. Otherwise, um, you'll do what I did. So I, I did take mine out when I was uh, around 30, 31 years old and I was taxed as well as I got a 10% penalty. Um, so if you can avoid, that's why a lot of experts tell you to avoid taking any retirement out unless it's really to avoid bankruptcy. That's really the only reason you might consider um, taking out some of your 401k. Um, but other than that, you really don't want to touch your your retirement funds uh, just because the penalties and the taxes, they add up uh, to a lot of money. So when you turn 60, can you just take it all out or should you take it out in like increments? How does that work? Increments. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. So this is kind of the big, the big bummer, which I'm dealing with my parents right now, actually. Uh, so they have a retirement and most of it's all in traditional accounts. Um, mm -hmm. And traditional means you got a tax break for it already. So, so uh, today, if you're, if you're contributing to a traditional 401k or a traditional Roth, it means that um, that money came out of your paycheck before you were actually taxed on it. So you're not taxed today. The problem is you will be taxed in retirement. So if you withdraw, um, let's just say $30,000, um, then you're going to get a, a tax. I don't know what the rates are. Let's say it's 15% for that that no. amount of money. Um, but you're going to have to, you know, you're not going to end up with $30,000. You're going to end up with closer to 25000 So that's something to consider um, when you take the money out. What's the strategy behind that? Um, you know, there's, that's a good question. <laughs> I hear a lot of people talking about converting traditionals to Roth, um, which is a good idea, but you have to be willing to, um, pay the taxes while you do that. And there's also some income limitations. Um, so for example, I, I don't know what they are by heart, but you know, if you make so, too much money today, you can't actually invest in a Roth. You can do a backdoor Roth. But it's when you do that, you're um, you pay a lot of taxes today. Um, but the benefit of the Roth, if you can contribute to a Roth, um, the benefit is you pay the taxes today. But that money can grow and grow, especially if you're 30 years old today. That money can grow and grow tax-free. So maybe you pay taxes on, let's just say, over the last 10 years, you've contributed 100,000. And you pay taxes on that hundred thousand, but then that money has like two decades to grow. It's going to be, you know, I don't know, five. Let's just say five or six hundred thousand, and actually, it'll probably be more than that. But, um, but that 
that balance that you have in the future for $600,000, you are not going to pay a penny of tax on mm. $600,000, even though originally you only paid you know, tax on the 100,000. So people make the argument not to use the Roth a lot because they say, oh, my tax bracket's going to get lower. I'm not going to make as much money in retirement, but they don't actually think about the growth. It's not like a one for one, you know, what you contribute today and pay tax on is going to be a lot smaller than, you know, in a decade or three decades. Yeah. Thank you so much for explaining all of that. I know it's slightly confusing and like you got the Roth, you got the traditional and Roth has limits and you got the backdoor Roth, which I'm still hoping to learn about at some point. Um, so real quick, as far as the Roth goes, as you said, there's like a limit, right? So is there's a limit for a personal Roth and a limit for an employer Roth, correct? Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. So $6,500, I believe, is the limit this year for anyone under 55, I believe. Um, so yeah, so if you're in, and you're under the income limitation, then you can contribute $6,500 a year. Um, for your employer, the, the uh, limit, I don't actually know it by heart, but it is much higher. Um, so most of my employer contributions are actually through the Roth. Um, I think and, it's like again, 20, it's, 21,000, 20 it's and a half. It's in the 20s. Like yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, something so like that. Definitely take advantage of that if you can. Yep. So those are treated separately, right? Like if, if I'm maxing out, if I'm over, if I'm hitting this is 20 grand for the employer, Roth, that has nothing to do with my personal one. Exactly. Totally separate. Yep. Okay. Okay. This is good to know. Thank you so much for answering all this. <laughs> um, I mean, I, the last thing I got to ask is I would love your, your input on, on credit cards. Um, when someone's looking to open up a credit card, do you have any advice or perhaps a small print that people should be reading before signing on? That's a good question. I will tell you, um, I did, I missed this in my story, but one of the ways I saved a ton of money, like I saved almost 10,000 in interest just from using 0% credit cards. Um, and again, I'm a nerd, so I had it all written out. I think I had like four deals going at once. <laughs> I made sure that I only transferred enough that I could pay off like within the 12 months or 18 months, whatever the term was. So I actually am a fan of credit cards if you use them right and you don't mm -hmm. think like me and think that they're part of your you know, income or whatever I thought. I thought I could just spend freely. Um, I Today, though, I only have one credit card. Um, yeah, I... It's a good point. I mean, there is definitely a lot of small print when it comes to credit cards. I would uh, recommend reading it, especially if you're going to do a transfer. Um, I don't know if those are still available today, but you really want to make sure you read that. Because, for example, if you transfer uh, some money over there to a 0% and you decide that you're going to go use that credit card later, you're in trouble because every time you make that payment, all, all your payment is going to actually be applied to the 0% portion. And that like $50 purchase you made is going to be at the 25% rate. Um, and you're going to continue to owe that until you pay off the 0%. So the credit cards definitely have ways to get you if you're not paying attention, if you don't read that small print. Um, but on the other hand, they can be awesome tools if you know all the rules. Uh, so like you said, I would, I don't necessarily have a person like a recommendation on one type of card. I would just say you don't probably need more than one unless you're really trying to get off debt, you know, get out of debt and you're really trying to use this, um, this 0% tool if it's, if it's even offered today. But um, yeah, I, 
just read the small print. Make sure you're not paying. To be honest, if you have a credit card, make sure it's paid off every single month on time. Um, when you do that, you're never going to incur interest. You're not going to incur fees. And m in most cases, you'll probably get some points. Mm -hmm. um, and then also always make sure that you actually have the money in the bank when you make these purchases. Sometimes, um, you know, we we put we swipe a card and we don't actually feel like the tangible um, cost of it because it's on the card. Who cares? Um, but when you have the cash in your account and you know that you know that cash is going to take away or be gone from that purchase, there's something more tangible about it. So never spend more than you've got in the bank. Um, and then, and then credit cards can be a great thing if, if you follow those rules. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I remember the first credit card that I got was when I was, I think I was 16, 17 years old oh, wow. when I first got my car and my parents said, use this credit card only for gas. And I would fill up my car and I drive home, log in, pay it off immediately. Awesome. It was good. I just see it as a, as it's a debit card to me, but you can get rewards from it. That's just how I see it. Awesome. Like, That's yeah. great. Yeah. I, I mean, more people saw it. <laughs> right. I, I, I mean, geez. I mean, so many people have issues with credit cards. It's not something I've dealt with because I was taught at an early age, just don't buy things you can't afford, yeah. but it's amazing how many people, you know, just swipe that credit card, swipe that mm -hmm. credit card. And then before they know it, thousands of dollars have gone by and you got to pay it off. And, um, but yeah, like, like you just said, I want to hit on real quick is like, if you pay the pay off every month, you have nothing to be scared of. These credit cards are tools that you can use and you can actually get rewards. If you do your research, like, um, I set my mom up a couple months ago with a rewards credit card. She gets like 3% cash back on gasoline and stuff like that. Whereas, I use a lot of the travel cards. I use like the Venture X. I use the Chase Sapphire and stuff. Whereas like, hey, I pay it off every month, but I'm getting rewards and points to go travel for free or stay in a hotel and stuff like that. So if you play the game uh, properly, like you can come out ahead. It's just like you said, you got to pay it off every month or that's when you start getting in trouble and then you start falling behind and those, those yep. rewards aren't worth it anymore. <laughs> so. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> but Corey, I want to get uh, to the course that you teach. I want you to pub yourself where people can find you. I know you have the win with money course and people have heard your story and how you won with money. I mean, I want people to understand you did this relatively, I'll say relatively quickly, right? Like you're still young. You said when you're 31, you're in a boatload of trouble. You're not 70 years old. This didn't take 40 yeah, I'm years. I'm still like, in my forties. Yeah. Yeah. You turned this around pretty quick. Forties is young. Like, yeah. you know, we, I think we all, a lot of us think of working until 60, 65, seven, you can probably call it quit soon. Like you turn this around fast. So I want people to know about your course. So please pub that right now. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ryan. Yeah. Yep. So I developed this course back in August. Uh, it's called Win With Your Money 101. This course really goes through the, the five different stages of money. Um, and it starts with your mindset. That's stage one. And, you know, many people, I think, skip over this stage, but this is actually the most fundamental. I think, especially if you're a natural spender, you really need a change in perspective. That's really what, um, kind of pushed me over the edge to really start to see things differently. Uh, so that's what I hope to convey through the course. Um, and then there's two sections on debt and there's two sections on investing. 
Uh, I think it's a great course. I've gotten good feedback on it. Um, so I would love it if you try it out. You can sign up for it at my blog, which is uh, winwithyourmoney.com. And I've recently also redesigned the blog. So feel free to go explore it. Um, I talk about the five stages of money there as well. So there's some helpful visuals. Um, I also talk about my debt-free journey. Um, so yeah, so definitely come visit. Um, I'm also on Twitter. So at I am Corey Arnold and um, feel free to reach out to me. I, you know, I love answering questions and, and getting feedback. Yeah, and I will say, yes, follow you on Twitter. I'm not super active on Twitter, but I follow you and some others. And it is such a delight to log in and actually see you spend a lot of time actually like giving really good information. And I log in, I'll see your account. You're like, I invest in these, look into investing in these. You are very specific in what to invest in. I absolutely hate listening to things where like invest in an index fund. And and that's the end of the conversation. It was like, what does that mean? Which one? I don't know. Like, and, and I think people get confused and like, I don't know what to do now. Whereas you are very specific. Like, I thank you for saying like, which ones you invest in, which ones to look into, which one give dividends, all that kind of stuff. And that is like the information I feel like that pushes you over the hump as to like, okay, now I know where to get started. Now I know which ones to buy and which ones to invest in. So you are 1000% worth a follow. I'm so happy I found you. I'll definitely be following you. Everything you just listed will be in the show notes. So people just go ahead and scroll down, follow you, find your course, find your website, sign up for your blog. It's really good information. I know this isn't like the fanciest of topics for people to cover is money, right? But you got to know this stuff. You really got to know this stuff. And I think you would agree when I say like, hey, take an hour now and save you thousands later, yes. right? <laughs> exactly. So I'll agree. I don't know. Take, a, take a few minutes today, write down your, write down where you are today. That would mm -hmm. be kind of the one piece of advice. Yeah. I mean, occasionally like, like my wife and I will sit down on like a Sunday morning with a coffee for an hour. We look at like our investments or where our money's going. It's like, okay, cool. And then it's just like peace of mind for the next month or two. You know, I just, I know where we're at and it's, you know, it's, it's great. So I don't know. I thank you so much for telling your story and being honestly kind of vulnerable and honest. A lot of people might not really divulge some of this stuff. So genuinely appreciate it. So thanks, Corey. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, Thank you so much, Ryan, for having me. <laughs> Super big thank you to Corey Arnold for joining me on this episode and being so honest. Honestly, when I asked her the question, she was just honest. She wasn't coy about anything, just very candid. Hey, this is how much I made. This is how much I was in debt. This is how I got out of it. And these are the things I invest in. I absolutely love that. There was no ambiguity in her answers. So Corey, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story something we can all benefit from even if you only take part of her path or part of her journey with you moving forward i know you're going to be in a better position years from now and i'm definitely doing that and i want to thank every one of you for listening to this episode always appreciate it if you like this episode or any other episode please leave a review, like it, share it with your friends and family, and always subscribe so you're notified when the latest episode comes out. And that's coming very soon. So I'll catch you all next time on the Pursuit of Happiness podcast.